David Frum is a staff writer at The Atlantic. He has written or co-written nine previous books, three of them New York Times bestsellers. In 2001 and two, he served as speechwriter and special assistant to President George W. Bush. From 2014 through 2017, he chaired Policy Exchange, Britain's leading center-right think tank. He and his wife, Danielle Crittenden, from live in Washington, D.C. and Wellington, Ontario. They have three children. We are not in the Caribbean. We are in Wellington, Ontario. Yeah. And we hear the, the surf of Lake Ontario just behind us, and I hope listeners to the program can hear it too, and that it's not too distracting. That it's, a, it's pleasant white noise, not disagreeable background static. Let's hope that it's not just like watching watching a fireplace on TV. Yes. <laughs> because you have a lot of interesting things to say and I should mention that as far as the content of the book, I just listened to your marathon podcast with uh, Lawrence Strauss and boy, you cover a lot of really interesting ground quite in intensely. Yes. I, I don't know that I've ever s spoken so long in a recorded form, with anyone about anything, it, w it was it was a taxing, a taxing thing, and I, I remain skeptical that there's an audience for that much me. But let's hope there is, or let's hope for Lawrence's sake, because uh, it's, it's his business. Well, you, and this is what I want to get into. You really have done a ton of podcasts. Yes, and so clearly the podcasters think that there's an audience for you. So my mission here is to ask you a question that you've not been, been asked before, and hopefully, hopefully I'll get an answer that's uh, not a rote one. So let's start at the back of the book, and the book is Trumpocalypse, Restoring American Democracy, published by Collins. The very last thing in the book, she is mine own, and I, as rich in having such a jewel as twenty seas, if all their sand were pearl, the water nectar, and the rocks pure gold. And you preface that by saying, the first face I see every day has been the last eye on this text. I repeat here the line Shakespeare wrote, with some premonition of what it is like to live in the warmth of the world Danielle makes for those she loves. That's beautiful. Both of them yeah. are beautiful. Yeah. Well, I, I, Shakespeare gets a little bit of an edge over me. So that's why we quote, because it's been done better. But uh, uh, Danielle has all, my wife Danielle, um, we've been married for, I guess, 33 years. Um, she has uh, always been an editor. She is not a gentle editor. Um, I, I remember uh, she read the first draft of my book about the Bush administration, The Right Man, and after reading the first draft, her comment was, can we afford to give the advance back? Right. That's harsh. <laughs> yeah. She was not wrong. But <laughs> yeah. Well, these days they give it to you anyway, so you yeah. don't have to worry, right? But, uh, and you've said that before. What's that? The, that, that story? That, that story. Yeah. I have told that story before. Yeah. 
I've, I've repeated that's the rule here. Okay, I repeated. You cannot say I'll, anything you've ever said. Oh, before. I cannot say anything. All right. Well, that, I mean, what did Ronald Reagan call it? Anecdotal. Sure. But Danielle has 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 always been um, a more or less active editor. Um, some books more active, some books less, and that's dependent on what's going on in her life, and it's also dependent on the nature uh, of the book. And I find as I get older, also the editorial process becomes more sort of present through the writing of the book. I mean, you're discussing things, you're reacting, and maybe that's also because of working at a magazine like The Atlantic, that almost none of this book, almost not a sentence in the book, originally appeared in The Atlantic. Um, it's not, this is not at all an anthology. Not like the first one. Well, no, in the first one, almost none of the book. There, there are individual sentences and paragraphs okay. that have been taken, but I never took like a, ch a chunk of, there's no point where there's a chunk of text that's more than about 300 words long that appears in the same form as it appeared in the Atlantic. Um, partly because books are different, times are different, but the ideas and the process and the working things out, that's very interactive when you're doing such a live story as the Trump administration yeah. and trying to keep up with it in something like proper time. In Act 5, Scene 1 of Hamlet, Hamlet says that he loved Ophelia so much that he'd eat a, a crocodile for her. Yes. So my question is, and I hope this hasn't been asked before, is, is would you eat a crocodile for Danielle? Um, <laughs> uh, we once visited an alligator farm together with our young kids in Florida where alligator meat was an option. I did not order it. Um, but I'll tell you this, you could actually put that the other way around because one of the characteristics of Danielle, for better or for worse, is she will not refuse a dare. Um, I will, I th just because you dare, I'm not going to do something stupid just because you preface it with the words, I dare you. But we have long since, if you say to Danielle, I dare you, she will do it. So yes, she would, she would be properly. But of course, by Act 5, Scene 1, Hamlet has killed Ophelia. She killed herself, but yeah, he... He drove her yeah, to it. Yeah, he did drive her to so it. Okay. I think one of the things, Danielle, just, who does a podcast, has recorded a podcast with a writer named Daphne Merkin. And Daphne Merkin has recently published a very interesting novel about obsessive love. People who are driven to love to the point of self-harm, helping others. And you think, what on earth is the point of that? You don't have a choice, though. Well, I have a series. This is a point I've not made in public before. I, I, I've made it um, in advice to friends. People talk about relationships as good or bad. And we, when we use the phrase a good relationship, we tend to use the word good in, to mean um, satisfying, pleasing, joyful, i.e. good for the two people inside it. But relationships, in my view, have a moral component, and a good relationship is it's not enough that it make happy the two people inside it. It really isn't. And this is very much true of, of Danielle. It's you have to the goodness has to be a moral good. It has to spread itself to others. And the test is, what's the impact on the children? What's the impact on the neighbors? What's the impact on the community? So, when Hamlet says, "I'll eat a crocodile for her," well, how about instead not drive her to suicide, marry her, make her queen of Denmark, yeah. uh, and then rule benignly, taking adv advice and guidance from your, uh, and, and make this relationship in, in the book, in the play, uh, the Hamlet is a source of misery. Hamlet murders Ophelia's father. He uh, ends up fighting Ophelia's brother, and they both die. Uh, 
and there are no there are no offspring, and he doesn't become king of Denmark, and Ophelia's children do not rule after him, and this is this whole thing has been nothing but an affliction for everybody, mm. and and it makes for a play we still talk about and think about, but there's no model for how to live. I mean, the test of your relationship should be that when you're both gone, do people say the world? I, my life was better. The war, our little community was better because you, the two of you, were together in that world. So, Trump wouldn't eat a crocodile for anyone. No, he's a very picky eater, isn't he? He's uh, got a very sophisticated palate. <laughs> if if Trump were not doing so much harm to so many people, he would be a pitiable character. Say in the book. Um, just watching him, but, but also knowing people who've had his mental disorder. He loves nobody, and nobody loves him. And he retreats when he, he spends enormous time alone. And what a hell it must be to be alone as Donald Trump. That's why he's always on the television, uh, because it's, it's a way of not being alone with who he is and, and what he's done. Are you obsessed with him? You know, Pete. Donald Trump fans will say, oh, you spend too much time thinking about the president. They're saying, um, all right, we're talking about the human being who has the capacity to end organized human life on Earth in any period of eight minutes. Um, I think he's worthy of our attention. But, you know, I'm not obsessed with him in the sense that he actually is not an interesting person. Very little of my books about him have focused on him personally. Um, and I, I don't do the Michael Wolf, Bob Woodward kind of book where I try to talk to a lot of people around him and get to know him mm. because I think he's not interesting in a way that, say, Richard Nixon was an interesting person. Woodrow Wilson was an interesting person. And these are presidents who did much of good and much of bad, who wrote things that are still worth reading, had comp uh, complex personalities. Mm. Trump the man, he's a psychological profile, but he's not an interesting person. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Proust in our last conversation yeah. and how uh, uh, one of the things that really impressed you was his perception of human psychology. But you're right, you, the, the book really isn't so much a, an analysis of his personality. In this particular case, it's, it's, a, it's almost like a party platform recommendations on how we can get through this after the, after he's done his damage. Well, the two Trump books I've written, which I didn't intend as a cycle, but which are actually work as a cycle, both have bookend names that were very carefully chosen. They're both derived from Greek, Trumpocracy and Trumpocalypse. The, the assy ending means rule, basically. And so democracy, autocracy. So Trumpocracy was a study of the means by which Trump got power and then how he was likely to use that power. It was not about his psychology, it was about his power. Right. And Trumpocalypse, again, that comes from a, two Greek words, apocalypse, which means literally to, to remove the drapery from something, to unveil, to reveal. And so we use in casual speech apocalypse to mean the end of the world, but it's, it's a vision of the future. And that's what this book tries to be. So the first was a study of his power. This, this is a study of the consequences of his government and what's to come in the future. You end the first book on a note of hope, yeah. and I thought it was interesting how in, in this book you quote, and I, I'm going to ask you just to read it if you don't mind, it's an absolutely stunning poem by Byron yeah. called Darkness, so yeah. here it is. 
I had a dream which was not all a dream. The bright sun was extinguished, and the stars did wander darkling in the eternal space, rayless and pathless, and the icy earth swung blind and blackening in the moonless air. Morn came and went and came and brought no day, and men forgot their passions in the dread of this their desolation, and all hearts were chilled into a selfish prayer for light. Yeah, and then you question the word selfish. You don't understand why Byron dismissed that prayer as selfish. And it seems to me that he's referring to an apocalypse. He's referring to a world of trumps. Yeah. And Byron is hopeless, but you're not. Yeah. Well, that was written, of course, in the worst weeks of the COVID epidemic in the Northeastern United States. That was written, uh, that was written in mid-March, or quoted, in that section was written yes. in mid-March. This was written in 1816, as yeah, you point out, after a volcanic explosion that made the whole world dark, right. literally. And so I guess what, what Byron is talking about there is, yes, we are alone, we're isolated, and so we pray for light for ourselves and not, not for others. Kind of enlightened self-interest, you would hope. But if we get some light, it's going to be lighter for everybody. But I talked at that point just about that this strange feeling that was true that where you could that, that downtown Washington D.C., the, the the center of the mightiest power in the history of the world, was just empty, and the streets were empty, and things were shuttered. And because people then knew much less about the spread of COVID than they do now, people would turn away from each other and like um, uh, keep distances. Um, in a way that expressed sort of fear rather than social responsibility. I want to jump to Twitter. You talk about uh, about Twitter, and Twitter is obviously an important part of your life. You're there a lot. Yes, unfortunately. But I, I love Twitter. Yeah. So uh, do I, unfortunately. I, yeah. <laughs> so here's what you say about it, and I, I really want to know how it informed you yeah. writing the book. Yeah. You talk about. This book was improved by many friends, readers, and journalistic colleagues who shared ideas and information on Twitter. Their generous work alerted me to so much that I might otherwise never have seen. I hope I have sometimes returned the favor. Inside this book, I've discussed the harm that can be done by social media. They can also enrich our lives in thought. Can yeah. you just comment on how, it's, how it helped you to write the book? Well, the, the first Twitter is an, an insight in the mind of the person we're writing about, Donald Trump. Um, one, there's a very funny line written by a Canadian journalist at the beginning of the Trump presidency, uh, Douglas Saunders, and I won't be able to, who writes for the Globe and Mail, I don't know that I'll quote it exactly, but the idea was, he said, idea for a science fiction story, the leader of the free world has gone insane, and we all know it because we all carry in our pockets a box that reveals his innermost thoughts. <laughs> And, and that's true. I mean, we can see what he's thinking in a way that, you know, Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon had tape recordings in the Oval Office. And those tapes became available in Nixon's case because of a court case just at the end of his presidency, in Johnson's and Kennedy's case not for many years after their deaths. And they suddenly cast a new light on who these people were. Well, Trump is playing for us the tape recordings of his presidency. And we can see who he is and what he is and how he thinks. Um, so that's been a help. What's also been a help is, so journalists advertise their work on Twitter. And you can't read every 
periodical in the English-speaking world, obviously. But what you can do is cast your eye down a page of Twitter and notice something, and then clip articles. And so a lot of my filing system uh, for the, people will say about I mean about Trumpocracy. How do you remember all this stuff? So well, the answer is I see it tweeted, and I drag, and then I've got a, a folder in my email of Twitter news that's broken down by subjects, and I just drag the tweets into these folders arranged by topic. Yeah. And then when I need to address that topic, I go through it, and there will be 200 things that have been written over the past four years that then lead you. Now, I don't. one of my rules is a newspaper article alone is never an authoritative source of anything. Okay. I know how many mistakes I make, um, and I assume my colleagues make approximately as many, maybe better, maybe worse, I don't know. But you always you can never treat something you see, even in the New York Times, as, as or the Washington Post, or the Atlantic, as the last word. But it can direct you to where you need to go. So the New York Times or the Washington Post will have a story about something the Centers for Disease Control said, and then you can, that reminds you, I better go get that report. You pull the report, and then you can check it for yourself. Um, what I also find is uh, it, it's a way of um, meeting leading sources. So what will happen is there will be, um, okay, well, as you and I speak, uh, the world has become, has, has seen that terrible drone photo of Uyghur Muslims, Turkish-speaking Muslims in, inside China being taken to a train to be deported God knows where. Yeah, talk about resonant. Talk about resonant. So you want to, so, I mean, I've been following the story with some attention for a while. I've been following it more. So you want to know, okay, in 10 minutes, how do I get smart about this? Who, and Twitter can direct you to here are the here are the reporters who have been working on this story. I'm going to you ask for stories that I've never used before. This is a story that I've only used in the acknowledgments of another book. But I, in the days of uh, before the internet, I had a system for informing myself on a new subject, uh, which was let's say you want to learn about something ancient rocks, you know, ast asteroids, uh, paintings of. Are you going to oh, yeah. talk about footnotes? Footnotes. Well, you told me that in oh, our good. last interview. Okay, then I am repeating so, myself. To the wrong person. To the wrong person. <laughs> All right. So, but Twitter is the same thing. Yeah. Thank you for correcting me on that. It's a way of cross-checking, finding the people. And then also communicating with those people if, yeah. you, if you wish to, or yeah. reaching out to them at least. Yes. That, uh, that's another aspect that's really quite new and, and exciting. Yeah. Um, so I, well, the article I have going next into the Atlantic um, is a review of a new book about the Spanish-Aztec encounter in the 1520s. And the, I know about this book because the author is an archaeologist in Mexico. I, I was led to his work on Twitter. We communicated. One of his students showed me around on my last trip to Mexico. And yeah. so I know someone who is an eminence in his field, but it's not my field. I would never have known about him. I like to talk about to my daughters and anyone will listen, the importance of when you're traveling, just reaching out, talking to, to people, yeah. uh, because your experience is so much richer when you meet interesting people and yeah. share things with them. But one and of the things we have to be careful of, especially in social media, is there are a lot of people who set themselves up as experts in social media who aren't. Yeah. And so the, the danger of social media uh, is that you can be led to some crackpot with a scientific overlay who then gives you false information. Plus and there's all sorts of anonymous assholes on right. social media. Right. So how you, uh, so using it properly and responsibly, that's the real challenge. Okay. Now, throughout the book, I put 
a little VG because I really do think that you you capture really beautifully some very sort of complicated political issues, complex issues, and you summarize them in a in, in an admirable way. So here's a here's a VG. We want things to return to normal, back to a world in which we have not wasted time rebutting demented conspiracy theories and fact-checking farcical lies every day. We want a government that operates competently and honestly, headed by a president who behaves with dignity and integrity. If we were at risk of underappreciating the quiet grace of decency, Trump has cured us of that. But after we evict the squatter, we must repair the house he trashed. So this is a home repair manual? <laughs> a little bit. A little bit. Um, but I'm trying to... You know, in the world of people criticize the Trump presidency. Um, there may be two broad currents. Um, there are those who are radical and those who are nostalgic. Um, and the nostalgics say um, what I'm sort of endorsing and criticizing here at the same time is just could it just just turn back the clock. Some, this is a terrible aberration in American history and we just need to get back to the main path. And that's something that Joe Biden says again and again in his campaign. He may even sincerely believe it. He may not. Politicians don't always say what they most sincerely believe. The radical critique is that Trump is not a totally new thing. He intensifies things that were already there, but he confronts us some, some truths that uh, we need to see. And look, one of the things I discover in older age is when you're confronted with contradictory remarks, you end up like the rabbi in that joke about the quarreling business partners, you're right, you're right, we can't both be right, that's right too. <laughs> both of them are true, and so that's what this book is about, both about you needing to get back to some of the main paths, but also yeah. understanding that the radical criticisms of Trump, there's a lot of truth to that. Um, and he, he came from somewhere, he didn't come out of nowhere. Sure. I think it's a fluke that he won the presidency. Right. But it's not a fluke that he won the Republican nomination. Yeah, he wiped them all out, didn't right. he? Right. That's that showed something deep and real. Then, yeah. Then once you're then you're one of the two most likely people to be the next president of the United States, mm -hmm. and, and then you're then flukes can happen, but you don't fluke your way into a party nomination, and it, and and then to win. So one of the things that you're criticized for is that the book ignores the fact that there is a lot of bad in the world. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about. Noam Chomsky's yeah. quote adolescent view and that your book adopts a more quote childish view that the US is the good guy that it's exceptional that it's devoted to doing good in the world and some have argued that the seeds for Trump were planted during the Bush era with their losing moral authority by attacking Iraq and ignoring science. So there is no reckoning with the past in your book, and you're doing a readers a disservice by that. Okay, well there's so many things you say there that this may take me a bit of time to unpack, and I, so I'll do it in pieces so that I don't just monologue. Um, 
first, I think that phrase about childish and adolescent views, that's actually my language. I know it is. <laughs> and, and what I was referring to there was, and I think this came from, we talked about this with Lawrence Kress. No, I heard that before. Actually, I had yeah. a discussion with a couple of friends, and they feel the same way that Strauss does. Okay, so here's, but here's the language I was using there. So, uh, the childish view is that George Washington was a man who could not tell a lie. And when he cut down uh, his father's cherry tree, he confessed the crime when confronted. The adolescent view is, because adolescents are very clever but very smart out here, mm. that story's all made up. There was no cherry tree. He never cut it down. Washington did tell lies sometimes. Mm. Um, he also owned slaves. You're cynical. Yeah. He also owned slaves. Um, uh, he also bought and sold slaves. Um, he also wasn't that good a general, really. Um, and. Uh, uh, and really, there's a, there's a lot more to this than you were taught as a kid. That is capped by the adult view. And the adult view is to say, all those things the adolescent says are indeed true. Uh, they are also fundamentally wrong, because there's actually more fundamental truth, because Washington was a great and good man. Yes. And don't tear him down because and, of... And all those things you say are true and, and, and important to know. But not, but not if they blind you to the deeper truth, which is hidden in the childish version of that. Which is your book. So that's my view of American history. So, by the way, I want to say about this phrase, American exceptionalism. I, I have not published about this. There's a little bit about this, and I think, in Trumpocracy, or Trumpocracy, but I think I mostly caught it. I delivered a big lecture in um, Germany last year, and I'm going to someday work this into a book on the theme of American exceptionalism, which I regard as not a useful concept. But to understand why it's not useful, you have to understand where it came from. And it's really, really important to get this. People think that we use it in casual speech to mean American messianic vision, American manifest destiny. And you'll see Bill O'Reilly and people like that will talk about this. And, you know, they don't believe in American exceptionalism, that America is a force for good in the world. So the, the concept of American exceptionalism originated as a criticism, not as a compliment. <laughs> that uh, people would look at the path of development, Americans would look at the way Europe had developed and say, we're not doing it right. American exceptionalism actually originally, the, core, the, the classic statement comes from a German Marxist named Werner Sombart, who talked about, who asked this question, why does the United States not have a proper worker socialist party like they do in Britain and Germany? America's doing it wrong. So this view, which was prevalent in the late 19th century, after the horrors of the 20th century, Americans began writing about it and saying, yeah, it's true that we developed in a radically different way from Europe, and that's good. We had no fascism, and we had no communism, and that's good. So they And we had morals, and we had purpose. And well, no, they didn't quite put it that way. It was no. just that we had our own special American path of development. That it, we, that before 1914, we said it was worse because we didn't have a proper workers' party. After 1945, we say it's better because we don't have Nazis and communists. So, my, I have two points. One is, um, I'm not sure this is true as a description of the past, but it's certainly not true as a description of the present. That in the year 2020, the United States has way more in common with other developed countries than it has differences. Mm. Uh, I mean, there are, obviously there are important ways in which it's different, both culturally and institutionally. I mean, most developed countries are parliamentary democracies, very few have presidents, those who do France is the only fully developed country with a presidential system, Mexico sort of. The point I want to make though is that you sort of whitewash the past of the Republican Party and America by saying that ultimately they're here for good in the world I, I, and that's their mission. I, I'm going to just reject that. So one of the things that is a theme of both 
Trumpocracy and Trumpocalypse is I talk a lot about the contested history of American democracy and how it's not a story of up, 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 ever wider voter rights. The voter rights have often been rolled back. By the Republicans? No, by, by both parties. So they're, they're rolled back. More recently by the Republicans. Yeah, but it, the, the, the party term isn't helpful. I mean, I, I point out how when Franklin Roosevelt in uh, 1940 won 98% of the vote in the state of South Carolina, he did so in an, an election where 50,000 people voted in a state with, at that point, a population of probably a million and a half. Um, so mm -hmm. that was actually done by Democrats. And then Republicans mm -hmm. in cities of the North, but it doesn't, I mean, the party, these are all dead people. The party identity doesn't matter. The point is that it's always contested. Um, I often cite uh, the Iraq War as one of a series of things since 1998 that has discredited American elites and made Americans vulnerable to Trump-style politics. But one of the reasons I do reject when people say it's all about Bush, or some, some Republicans say it's all about Obama, who had abuses of his own. I was, the, the most fundamental reason I reject it is because I reject American exceptionalism and say, if you've got a phenomenon which is producing the National Front in France, which is producing the alternative for Germany yeah, in Germany, it's not specific to, you can't uh, say, what, yeah. in, Amer what yeah. in American history produced yeah. Marine Le Pen? So it's, it's narrow, it's provincial, and one of the things in my writing I'm always struggling against is the provincialism of American life, where they refuse to look at other countries. Yeah, they're very ethnocentric. The, the joke, Americans will do anything for other countries except read about them. So you're not a valet for the Bushes, then? I'm happy to talk about the Bushes, um, and I have many points of defense of George W. Bush. I've got some points of criticism. Mm -hmm. um, but what I will fight against is, here's, here's what there is a lot of in the political world. Look, we're an aging society. In 2020, the median American is about 40 years old, and many people in life are, in their public life, are in their 60s. And as someone who's just turned 60, it becomes hard to absorb new ideas. So if you had a lot of emotional intensity about the events of 2003, if you're Michael Moore, 2003 is way more real to you than 2020. You were younger then, more popular then. It was more real. And so when people say, you know, something really important is happening in 2020, you get a little... Back, it's like, well, well, yeah, okay, maybe, but it's not like 2003. And all I want to say is, you don't ever want to be one of those people who is saying to the young people, you should have been there at Woodstock. Right, right. <laughs> this music today, you call this music Woodstock. That was we have problems now, and I, I think they are bigger and more dangerous. And you prescribe, if not solutions, then recommended actions that can what, ameliorate the, the damage that's being done. Yeah, and let me say one more thing about the, the Iraq war before, while we're on the subject. I support it because I believe there are weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, and I um, relied on the information. Most of us didn't. Yeah. I, I didn't have a security clearance, so I couldn't see the information, but I relied on the people who did. So that turned out to be untrue, um, and that invalidated the basis of the war as far as I was concerned. And there's a lot to criticize there. But people also, there's this idea that Iraq would have been fine, but for the Iraq war. That's obviously not yeah. true either. And I think after we see what has happened in Syria, where the Americans did not intervene, that for a tiny ethno-religious minority to rule by terror over an opposing ethno-religious majority and a huge ethno-religious majority, and that's the situation in both Iraq and in Syria, um, and to and constantly escalate the Syria and to hold on to power by escalating terror and escalating conflict with neighbors. 
that is going to end in an explosion sooner or later. And when the original terrorist patriarch dies and leaves power to his less ruthless sons, um, they're not going to be able to hold it. Mm -hmm. And the explosion, when it comes, will be terrible. And uh, the explosion was not, but the Iraq War moved that explosion forward in time. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but I don't think it changed what was going to happen in Iraq. Okay, speaking of Iraq and supporting uh, the invasion of it, you knew Christopher Hitchens. Well. What advice, if any, did he give you about being a writer and a public intellectual? And do you think you're trying, are you trying to fill the void left by him? He never gave me advice on those subjects. Um, Christopher had a circle of protégés um, whom he really guided. But they were, uh, so I, I'm probably a, de 15 years, a decade and a half younger than him. These people were 30 years younger than him. So he wouldn't have, I, I, I already had my own ways of doing things and he never gave me advice. And many of the particular ways that he did his work um, are ways that I do not do, I very much do not do my work. Um, like bullying people, you mean? Well, let me say, um, I mean, I'll say, so I write in the early morning. Uh, I write okay. sober. <laughs> That's what's so amazing about him, right? He could be drunk yeah. and he could write brilliantly. Yeah, but I... And quickly. I, 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 he, and I write in a much more compressed way. Than, like I, I, if, I, if I were Christopher Hitchens, and if I woke up one morning in his shoes or pajamas and saw the text that he had written the night before, I would cut that typically by 50 to 60%. I would not publish it. Um, so we have a different approach. In, uh, he, he wrote in a very round way, and I write in a very compressed way. As a public intellectual, he loved to debate. He was an Oxonian, came from that tradition. Um, he loved the clash and clash of opposing ideas. Um, I do that sometimes. I, I don't think uh, it's sometimes fun, but I mostly find it not useful. Um, that I, I actually, I, I'm a, a huge believer in public discussion rather than debate. If I had an hour and a half on a stage in front of an audience opposite somebody, I would much rather talk with someone whose views were at an angle to mine rather than directly opposed. And then mutually elucidate and have a conversation where instead of, like Christopher would love it if at the end of an hour and a half he was standing trampling over the <laughs> bruised carcass of his <laughs> defeated opponent. And, and I am happiest when I come off the stage and both people say, I yeah. never thought of it that way before. Yeah. Because good discussion does not have winners and losers. It only has, a good discussion only has winners, I should say. This is fascinating because uh, it gets to the question of how an interviewer should proceed. And I've had this debate with John Sawatsky who is a guru, he's Canadian, he's yeah. an interviewing guru. And uh, I think a certain amount of combativeness, confrontation, produces an interesting conversation. He's more of the belief that it's the sun getting what you want rather than the wind. Yes. Well, let me, uh, I, I um Years ago, did an interview on a BBC program. I did, two, did it twice, called Hard Talk. And Hard Talk was famous yeah. for its super confrontational questions. And I remember sitting on the stage, 
sitting on the chair with the person and thinking as I got the first question, no one who's sitting or should be sitting in this chair can't hit that pitch. Right. It's too easy. It's too easy. In fact, the more confrontational the question, the easier. It's, it's, it's like, as I, I think it's like, I'm not a baseball fan, so maybe I'm mangling the metaphor, but it's like throwing at a skilled hitter a fastball straight over the plate. The pitcher is providing much of the force that the batter will ultimately use to hit the ball, <laughs> making life easier for the batter. Look, sometimes um, my late mother was a great interviewer. Um, when, when she interviewed, uh, I'm going to forget his name, the coach who supplied um, illegal drugs uh, to the Canadian sprinter. Uh, yes, and yes. he came on the ben air. Ben Johnson, yeah. I forget the name of the coach. Yeah, uh, yeah. And he destroyed the career of Ben Johnson, who was in, authentically an incredibly talented athlete and would have had, without this man's so-called help, maybe one, one of the silver instead of the gold, uh, but he would have maybe next time won the gold, he would have won other games, he would have been a national hero, you know, he would to this day be lecturing and speaking and coaching and teaching, he would have had a life, and this man ruined his life by cheating. And he came on the air with a pre-packaged formula of lies. Now my mother chopped him to pieces. Okay, so that's, where there are places where, and expose the truth on air, so there are places where, but when you're not in that format, I, I, I so often am on TV, or I'm in a situation, and I can see the host has a list of four questions, and you say something, and you actually say something interesting or surprising, and that's a problem, because it delays them from getting from question two to question three. It's like a sheet of homework questions that have to be asked. So I think that depending on the format, there are different rules, but especially in the format we're doing, I think one of the things that a good, it has the capacity to be surprised, um, and to follow up, and to react to things. And try to get stuff out of the person that he's interviewing that that person hasn't said before. Yes, that's true. But but and the, but the way you do it, I mean, I would say it's like the hard talk thing. The more someone says, I'm going to extract something. My favorite version of this, and I, I am sure I've not, this is not original to me, I'm sure I've not told you this story before. So the late Pat Buckley, the wife of Bill Buckley, for many years ran an important charity ball in New York. And then there was a transition and younger and... Uh, more flamboyant people took it over from her in a way that was a little bit contested. Um, and there's a big talk thing in the society columns, and a, news, a journalist called up Pat Buckley to try to get her to say something nasty <laughs> about the people who, who had eased her out. Mm. So there are three or four rounds of the interview, and then finally Pat Buckley, on round four, said to the interviewer, I know what you're looking for, Ducky, and I'm not going to give it to you. <laughs> And one of the things about Pat Buckley is when she called you Ducky, <laughs> yeah, you were in say, real yeah. trouble. That was not an affectionate <laughs> nickname. <laughs> uh, well, I'm veering way off course here, but your mother was a was a champion. Did she ever give you any advice she, about... She gave advice to my sister, Linda, which is quoted in Linda's biography of Barbara, which very I see you're good, holding. Very good, which I have, yes. I, yeah. I, I just picked it up a couple of days ago. So, so Linda was um, at college, and she was at McGill, and... She was in a class, and one of the questions was, they were to, you were to write a paper on interviewing as an art. And so she said, well, I have the resource right here. And so she, she went home to Toronto, and she sat down with my mother, and she pulled out a recorder and said, okay, I want to ask you, what's the secret? What's the secret? And my mother said, ask short questions. Pause. Pause. That's it? <laughs> and... Uh, Basically, that's it. Now, but why is that it? Okay, so when you ask short questions, that tells me that you've done a couple of things. And I see this because I often get asked long questions. 
first it means you've thought about the question before you started talking. It is amazing how often the person is not thought before speaking. Charlie Rose was a notorious case. He, when he started a question, he didn't know what the question would be. Uh, and it, it took him a minute and a half to ask the question because only at the end of the minute and a half did he finally figure out what his question was supposed to be. So think about the question in advance. It'll be sh Actually, maybe even write it down. You can compress it. Second, a short question is a focus question. A long question has multiple parts, and you allow the person answering to choose which part they'll answer. When you ask a short question, you eliminate that choice. Uh, and next, a short question clarifies what's happening for the listener. One of the reasons that people ask super combative questions is because they're afraid the interview subject will, will squirm away. Well, anyone you want to interview, of course they know how to squirm away if they want to. They can, and they will, and you can't stop them. Um, they will not break down like in Perry Mason. Yes, I killed him. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't happen. But your audience can recognize that the person is squirming away. And the shorter the question, the more apparent it is to the audience whether the question was answered or not. <clears throat> okay. Why did you write the book? I, I wrote the first book. I wrote the first book because I was really frightened and upset. And... I felt other people were a little blithe about the danger the United States and the world were in, um, and I wanted to wake them up. Um, I wrote the second book because I felt the, the first book had left a lot of dangling threads that I wanted to sew up. And so the second book was written in a less intense mood. Uh, it was written over a much longer period of time. Yeah. And in a less Why intense mood. Part of it was I, I, it took me a long time to make up my mind to do it. So I, I often um, will sort of do notes toward a book. Um, I'm doing one right now. Um, and I'm, and I'm, I write, start writing things. I'm not sure what I'm going to do with them or whether it'll be a book. And so a lot of this, the Trumpocalypse started as notes toward a book. Um, and then there were a lot of events. And then I was incredibly busy. And so just didn't have... In the, in the summer of 2017, I was here in Prince Edward County, and I had some quiet. I had eight weeks, and I, I wrote Trumpocracy at a sitting. Trumpocalypse, I was, I was just, I never had that kind of settled time. Um, and so I was writing things in bits and pieces and throwing them away, rethinking things. So it, just, it was just a different kind of project. So it wasn't for the money? It wasn't for the credentials, which is what Richard Nash talks about when you write a book you add to your credentials when people google you oh. it comes up as author of this yes. book well I, I'm, I'm probably too old for the credentialing um, I have to live yes. with my credentials such as they are certainly when I wrote my first book that was an important I had things I wanted to say but I also wanted to make a mark on the world for money um, I would think you have received very poor career advice it's a it, is it a lost leader for all of the media appearances? For, look, for different people, some people get uh, make a lot of money out of books. You, that's theoretically possible, but you never know in advance whether that's going to be you, and it's so unlikely. And frankly, in the there was a time when the economy worked like this. Uh, you wrote books, that got you on TV, uh, and getting on TV got you speaking engagements, and people could make a living that way. Yeah. Uh, the fact is, the people on TV don't read the book anyway. 
um, and you can and, and you can get on TV with a tweet. And and look, a lot of modern books aren't really books anyway; they are tweets. Um, now, I write a book to bring order to my thoughts and to help other people bring order to their thoughts. Um, well, and also to to convince an audience yeah. of something. No. Uh, well, I mean, I have to accept that, that books are not the central place, don't have a central place in culture that they used to do. And um, fiction lost first, nonfiction is losing later. And, you know, that a lot of the political discussion has moved to TV and social media, and that's just the way it is. But for me, this is how I, I bring order to my thoughts. And, and then if people want to hear from me, I, think, I, I hope I can inspire people to want to think more and deeper about things. I mean, I'm, the book I'm, or the project I'm working on now, and it may be a book, is a project about this whole question of knocking statues over. So, if I, I could write, I could, right now, write a couple of eye-catching tweets that would take an extreme view one way or the other, and get me on TV, and then get me into all kinds of debates, and then I could lecture about it. But, actually, but I actually find the, comp the problem is complicated. Um, I think we, it would be the service I can do, other people can do other things, is I can inspire people to think more deeply and seriously about it and to realize some of the complexity and tragedy of human beings and their places in history. So that, that's what you want to do. That's what I want to do. This is what motivates you in your life. I want to make, you to make people, get people to think more deeply and seriously about important issues that affect their lives. Yeah. One of the questions I often have to I confront friends of mine who are in the writing process is to say, why is this a book? Why is this a book? Why isn't this an op-ed? Why isn't this a tweet? Um, what's, what's all that? Because the core ideas can be summed up. So why are you taking extra space? Why are you making an extra request of other people's time? And the answer is, well, either because there's more, in, like a, in a history book, there's more information that you need, or else because, as I said, as these are deeper subjects. The, the, the first reaction doesn't contain enough of the truth, and you need to think more. And so I'm going to take the time to make you think and rethink and see more fully and think more deeply about something. But maybe you have an instinctive moral reaction to it, but you need more. Hmm. So just final question. Are you happy with where you are in your life, professionally and if you'd like personally? Oh, yeah. No, of course. Um, yes, very much so. Probably because of inherited brain chemistry. Um, I think a lot, uh, uh, a lot of our outlook on life is beyond our control. Um, and I think people just are predisposed to have certain types of outlooks. I'm not a depressive person. Um, uh, people, and people who are, 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 they are in the grip of something that comes from inside them. I've had a happy marriage. Um, I have a strong family. I have dogs. Adam Gopnik, same thing. Very successful marriage. Yeah. He, he speaks beautifully about, about his wife in, in the acknowledgments to his books. Yeah. And so did uh, Mordecai Ritzler. Yes. Florence. Yes. Yeah. You guys yeah. are lucky. Yeah. Okay, well, I'll say one thing about, about the luck, and maybe this is, this is something I say, I, I have said before, sorry. And I say it a lot in private to younger people, which is I think a lot of people think that the, the process of marriage is about finding the right person. And there's a harder question, is, well, what about you? Are you the right person? Like, you take yourself, I'm a given, I'm a fact. Now I have to go shop for someone who suits me. So, well, maybe the way you are right now, there's no one who's going to suit you. Maybe the point is that, that, that you need to think, how do I be the right person? Yeah.
Do I be someone else's right person? You want them to come to you? No, I want I, I want so that if you're having trouble, often you are the glitch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And and let's put it this way: it is certainly it's easier to change yourself than it is to change the world.